thank you so much for that welcome and it's good to see you. I wish I could uh, see more smiling faces, but we've just got one more day to go for that. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you that uh, in this summertime we have this moment to reflect on these songs in the Bible, these psalms that are written for every season of the soul, whether we're full of joy or sorrow, whether we're doubting or confused, whether we're looking for strength for each new day, Lord. Thank you that these words are for us this morning from this Psalm 73. And by your spirit, we ask, would you teach us and would you lead us in greater steps of faith in our love and service of you? Amen. Well, if you are someone here today or you're watching on Zoom and you would call yourself a Christian, can I ask you a personal question? Are you ever tempted, for whatever reason, to walk away from your faith? Are you ever tempted? My second question then is this. Um, When you're not sure if you want to carry on, who do you turn to? Who would you think to talk to? I mean, maybe we think Christians should never talk about doubt. We shouldn't admit that to one another, that we're struggling with our faith. You might actually, in an extraordinary way, think, you know, I'd find it easier to say to someone at church, I've got cancer, than I'm not sure I want to carry on being a Christian. Isn't that extraordinary? Well, if you worry that church is not the kind of place where you can talk about personal struggles with your faith, if you're not sure that that's something that church allows, can I encourage you that God has caused this psalm, Psalm 73, to be written into the Bible for a reason. It's for you and for me. Every season of the soul is covered by the psalms. And that means that church is a great place to be. It's the right place to be when we're wrestling with questions about understanding our faith as we look out on the world and questions come to our mind. God has put it here for us and he's put it here for those who maybe wonder whether we'll ever be tempted to say, I'm not sure it's worth it being a Christian. One author has this to say about doubt. He says, it's an invitation to grow in faith and understanding rather than something we need to panic about. And I think that's why God has given us a psalm like this that helps us on our journey. So we're going to walk through Asaph's journey. He was the guy who wrote the psalm. If you look um, on your your worship uh, service, you'll see there Psalm 73 written out for you. And at the very beginning, it says a psalm of Asaph who wrote this for us today. Now, Asaph was a real guy. He was really there in Israel's history. In fact, you can read of him in 1 Chronicles 16. And Asaph was actually the worship leader, the main worship leader of God's people at the time. He represented, if you like, a really sort of committed man of God. He was the guy on the stage leading the singing, the celebrations. Um, He's the kind of guy who would have been at church every Sunday. He's the kind of guy always willing to lend a hand. He was a small group leader who knew his Bible inside out. He was all you'd hope or expect from a Christian. But he came close to giving up on it. Look at verse 2, and there it is in a nutshell for us. My feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. 
So what brought Asaph to a crisis in his faith? Well, what might surprise us, it wasn't sort of intellectual doubt. You know, the sort of the Richard Dawkins kind of thing where someone gives you a copy of The God Delusion and you're not sure whether you want to read it or not. Because you would think, well, what if it says stuff and I, I stop believing what I used to believe about the Bible or about God or about Jesus? No, it wasn't intellectual doubts that Asaph had. It wasn't maybe God doesn't exist after all that Asaph was thinking. No, his doubt is of a different kind. Asaph didn't doubt God's existence, but he was beginning to doubt God's goodness. Verses 1 to 3 set out the dilemma. Verse 1, surely, he's saying, look, surely God is good to who? Israel. In other words, God looks after his people. Who who are the people that God wants to bless? Well, don't do it now, but look back to Psalm 1. And and it's those who delight in the Lord that God causes to flourish and to bless. But, so God is good, surely God is good to Israel. That's kind of Sunday School 101. Okay, that's foundational for the Christian. But verse 2, my feet had nearly slipped. Why? Because Asaph was experiencing a disconnect between what he was reading in the Bible and what he was seeing in his experience in day-to-day life. Uh, Sunday School 101, God is good to Israel. But I look around the world and I see a lot of people doing very well, thank you very much, without any reference to God. Here it is, verse 3, do you see? I envied the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you see? Here's the heart of the matter for Asaph. Who are the people doing well in life? Who are those whom God seems to be blessing? It looks like it's those who don't give God a second thought. Verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care they go on amassing wealth. And so his conclusion is, well, verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, turns to verse 13, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. I mean, what's the point of being a Christian if those who aren't even trying to acknowledge God in the world just seem to do so much better than me? That's the disconnect that Asaph is experiencing. It's the kind of doubt that is the doubt we might give the name disillusionment. I've, kind of, I've tried going God's way, and I'm not seeing how it's working out for me. God seems to be rewarding those who aren't going his way. Maybe if I want a successful life, maybe if I want a happy life, a fulfilled, a prosperous life, maybe if I want things to work, maybe I'm better off without God. You see what Asaph, that's what this psalm is about. Maybe. Have you ever thought that? Secretly? Quietly? Not something you tell someone at church, but you've wondered, am I better off without God? The doubt of disillusionment. In other words, it just doesn't seem to work. And I think many Christians, I led a church in Birmingham for 20 years, many Christians were much more likely to be troubled by this kind of doubts than the intellectual one. 
So if you're looking into Christianity this morning and you're not, or you're not sure if you'd call yourself a Christian, can I say I'm really glad that you're here. We're really glad that you're here because it's maybe you're thinking about this kind of question too. You're, you're curious about Jesus. There's lots about Jesus that you like, that you admire. Uh, you've got Christian friends and, and they seem to have real morals or they stand for, for things and they're compassionate and kind people and you like Christians, but you're still thinking to yourself, I'm, I'm not sure what I would gain from becoming a Christian. So maybe that's where you are. And again, uh, it's keep listening in because Psalm 73 seems to be speaking to all of us. It's remarkable that this psalm written probably about 3,000 years ago could have been written today, isn't it? It's my life. It's extraordinary how it's speaking to me. God is using these words to speak to me and you today. So Asaph's story is not of a head struggling to believe, but of a heart struggling not to be bitter with God. The word heart, if you uh, underline a Bible, if you have a paper one, or if you want to think about this later and do a word search, the word heart occurs six times in this psalm. Verse 1, surely God is good to the pure in heart. Verse 7, the wicked from their callous hearts comes iniquity. Verse 13, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Verse 21, my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered. Verse 26, my heart, sorry, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So it's the battle for the heart that is asking the question, is it worth it? Following Jesus, is it really worth it? So let's have a look at this psalm briefly together. So verses 4 to 12, 1 to 3 was that kind of introduction, setting up the whole psalm now, 4 to 12, the problem. Here's the problem for Asaph. Life without God seems to offer others success. Okay, life without God seems to offer success 4 to 12. Maybe you scroll through Instagram or flick through magazines and consider the world of the rich and famous and wonder whether you envy the prosperity of others. Verse 4, they have no struggles. Man, I'm working hard to make ends meet. They've got no struggles. And I guess when you're going the way of the world and you're following the flow of the culture, it does make life a little easier, doesn't it, than standing out from the crowd because you're a Christian. Everything you say if you're going the way of the world, everything you're tempted to believe is likely to be met with applause. And what's more, not only do they have no doubts, well, they don't need to play by the rules. Verse 7, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their, their evil imaginations have no limits. You see, when you make up the rules for yourself, when you're not bound by God's standards or what Jesus says, well, you can kind of bend the rules, can't you, to make life work? You can sort of tell a few lies to, to secure a contract uh, for your employer, or you can uh, cut a few corners to get ahead. You can distort the figures. You can inflate the CV. When your conscience isn't troubled by thoughts of God and what he may think, and then they brag and they boast of their successes. Verse 8, they scoff. Yeah, look at me. 
Look what I'm getting in life. And speak with malice, with arrogance, they threaten oppression. And as a result of it all, verse 10, everybody loves them. Verse 10, the crowds actually flock to them. Not only are they happy, but everyone else is cheering them on. And their own conclusion? Is there a God? Well, if there is, he doesn't seem to care. Verse 11, they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Well, if there's a God, he seems to be quite happy with me doing this, that, and the other, and life is working out. This is what the wicked are like, Asaph concludes, verse 12. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. I thought God was good to Israel, to his people. And yet the world is full of people doing so well without him. Always carefree. Well, that's a reality as much today as it was back then. From the corrupt politicians who don't play by the rules, to the cheating husbands, to the ruthless businesswoman. And here's the problem. Here's what's sticking in Asaph's throat. Where is God in all of this? Verse 13. Surely, if that's what the wicked are doing and life is working, verse 13, surely I've kept my, vein, kept my heart in vain. I've, I've lived for Jesus. I've loved Jesus. I've wanted to do the right thing. And where has it got me? Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. So really the second point is this moment of crisis, verses 13 and 14. Faith seems pointless. It doesn't really get you anywhere, says Asaph. His complaint is not maybe God isn't there. His complaint is God doesn't care. And being a Christian doesn't pay. It's not worth it. And I wonder whether that's ever been your thought. You know, the sacrifices that you've made. The generosity that you've shown. Serving faithfully, speaking boldly, praying diligently. And yet for all your labors for God and for the gospel, there doesn't seem to be any advantage. Maybe today you're thinking, I'm not sure how God is being good to me right now. Maybe you've got friends who are prospering when you're not. And you're wondering, what is the point? Maybe you've waited patiently in hope of finding a Christian spouse. Whether, and living somewhat lonely life. Only to see others enjoying the pleasures of lust and love of life. And Asaph says, is it worth it? Living that way for Jesus. You'd think God would reward you. But instead, verse 14, Asaph says, it feels more like God is punishing me for going Jesus' way. Maybe like Asaph, verse 21, your heart is a little grieved at times and your spirit becomes bitter. But there's a marvelous turning point for us in this psalm. Glad you, I'm sure you're relieved to know that. Maybe you spotted it when it was read out. What changes Asaph? What can turn a heart that's in danger of becoming a little bit bitter towards God into a heart that's learning to rejoice in him again? What could bring that transformation in your heart and mine? 
It's verses 16 and 17. He says, when I tried to understand all this, in other words, when I looked at the world and tried to explain where God is and what he's doing, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply. I couldn't make sense of it. Until, here's the turning point, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Would you please notice here the key to the whole psalm and the clue to how to deal with questions of disillusionment? What makes following Jesus worthwhile? Notice the crucial point. Asaph's change of heart doesn't come about because of a change of circumstance. Nothing in his life has changed. It's not a change of circumstance, it's a change of perspective that changes Asaph's heart. What changed him? He said, I couldn't make sense of it till, verse 17, I entered the sanctuary of God and I understood their final destiny. He doesn't change his mind about God because he finds a marriage partner. He doesn't change his mind about God because he starts a new job. No, he sees his life from a brand new perspective. Did you notice verses 3 to 14, God is absent. In all of this trying to make sense of everything in the world, 3 to 14, just track it. Where is God in any of it? He's not there. Asaph's just looking at himself and his friends and his boss and his neighbor And he's just trying to make sense of it without reference to God. God isn't there, verses 3 to 14. The only time God's name appears is when God's enemies mock him. (laughs) Where is God? That's the only time God's name appears. His focus had just been my life, their life, my life, his life, my life. That's scroll through Instagram, click, 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 click. And verse 16, when I tried to do that, it, just, it was just oppressive. I was just miserable. If we just compare ourselves to other people in the world, it just makes us miserable. It's oppressive. But the joy comes from a bigger picture and a renewed perspective when he goes to church. He enters the sanctuary of God, verse 17. He hears from God's word and he thinks, actually... You know, this life, this short and uncertain life is not all that there is. Verse 17, what changed everything for him? I understood their final destiny. The bigger picture gave him a view of the future. That this life is just the title page. And heaven and hell are the book. A renewed perspective. The bigger picture. A few years ago, and it is a few years ago now, some of you weren't even born, The Guardian ran ran an award-winning advert on TV for their newspaper. And in the advert, you can Google it, and it's called The Whole Picture. If you just Google Guardian, The Whole Picture, don't do it now, but if you Google it, you can watch it. It seems really old now. Um, But basically, what it showed was this kind of young thug, like a skinhead thug, absolutely pegging it, running as fast as he can towards the street, along along the pavements. And then you see a guy carrying a briefcase and the guy is just bursting with energy to run up and he grabs hold of the guy and he pushes him against the wall. 
and you're sure this is a mugging. This guy's going to grab that bag and be gone. But then the camera pans out, and what you see is a pallet of bricks on a crane that are being lifted above some scaffolding, and the bricks are just falling off the pallet, and they were going to land straight on the head of that older guy. And the guy who's run along and pushed him into the wall is actually saving his life. But you could only see that when you saw the bigger picture, the whole picture. And that's what's going on in this psalm, is if you just compare yourself to everyone else and think about this life, it's not a big enough picture. You need to enter the sanctuary to see the whole picture. You need to think about the future. We need to read the Bibles and reflect on the gospel to realize that something bigger is going on. From one angle, at any given moment in time, you can draw the wrong conclusion about what God is doing for you until you remember the bigger picture. And that's what changed Asaph's heart. That's why, as believers, we need to open our Bibles at the beginning and the end of every day. Get the bigger picture. That's why we need to be together on a Sunday and, God willing, from next week, really and truly all back together. That's why we need to be talking to one another about what's going on and being honest about our struggles and our doubts so that people might speak the bigger picture in to renew our hearts and minds. Verse 17, then I paid attention or then I understood their final destiny. And only entering the sanctuary can give you that. No TV program is going to give you that. No feed onto your phone is going to give you that. But God can give you that. So three things as we finish that I think we get from the bigger picture. Verses 18 to 20, from envy to pity. When we remember the destiny of the wicked. See, I can envy the rich man his wealth and his cars and his clothes But if he doesn't know Jesus, the one thing I can't envy is his future. It's only if I refuse to remember his end that his life looks really attractive. I said to my 10-year-old son this week, I said, said, because you're a Christian, you've got a ticket to heaven. Okay, That means that when you die, because you've trusted Jesus, not in your goodness, but in Jesus' perfect death and resurrection for you, that you know where you're going. That ticket is, by faith, is your entrance to heaven. So you've got a ticket with heaven, to heaven. I said, would you swap places with anyone on earth who didn't have one of those tickets? I mean, like the richest person, the most famous person, the most beautiful person, the, one, the, the gold medalist or the footballer, would you change places with any of them if they didn't have the ticket that you've got? And he said, thought about it, and he said, no. I said, why? He said, because I've got a ticket to heaven, which is better than anything that they've got here on earth. And that's just a 10-year-old doing the basic maths. There's nothing to envy in those who don't know Jesus. 
and don't have the hope of heaven. There's nothing for us to see in them that should lead us to want to swap places with them. There's nothing that should make us think, I wish I were them. But what changes is the bigger picture, isn't it? Of course I'd want the house they've got, but I'd much rather have heaven than hell. I don't envy them when I see verse 19 that they will be suddenly destroyed. I can't envy anyone the terror that they will feel when they meet a holy God in judgment. So from envy to pity, pity the lost. And secondly, from bitterness to joy, when you remember not their end, but your end. Asaph now looks back and realizes how skewed his perspective has been, verses 21 to 26, how wrong his thoughts and attitudes has become. He says, verse 22, I was senseless and ignorant, like a brute beast. And do you know what that word is in English, a literal translation? I was like a hippopotamus. I was like a hippopotamus. I was so mad with rage that I wasn't getting out of life what I wanted, but it was so stupid. I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was like a hippopotamus because I'd forgotten everything that you prepared for me and the glorious future that I have with you. That's what I think he means by being ignorant. And after he confesses his bitterness, uh, he turns back to God in joy. The Christian is someone who can finally say, verse 25, look there with me, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. That's what my 10-year-old was saying. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. I've got everything if I know Jesus because I have heaven and I have God at my side, God within me all through this life. Yeah, do you see? You go from bitterness to joy when you remember where you're going. Malcolm Muggeridge was a novelist, journalist. He said this, he said, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that I represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together, and they are nothing less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. It's perspective. It's eternity in mind. So maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You're watching on Zoom. You're here in person. You're not sure you're a Christian. You have hopes. You have dreams for this life. And you wonder whether Christianity will help or hinder you in life. 
Well, I want to say it just depends how ambitious for life you are. You see, if Christianity really is true, if what Jesus has done through his death is offer you life from the dead and eternity with God forever, then that's the most ambitious life that anyone could ask for. And Jesus offers that to you if you will turn to him and follow him. Finally, for Asaph, complaints turns to praise, verses 27 to 28. Do you remember he said, if I'd spoken like this to the children of the church, if I'd gone around just complaining, God's, God's got it in for me, I'd have done enormous damage. But now, rather than being tempted to speak words of bitterness, I'm now determined to speak words of praise. Do you see 27? I will tell of your deeds. He'd come into church an angry man. He was leaving a man reconciled to God and to his future and also determined to speak for him. I have everything I need in life if I have Jesus. He'd focused on his doubts and become embittered. Now he was refreshed and renewed and ready to go again. So church is a great place to come with your doubts. Because it's where you can see them in the light of eternity. Just like Asaph, God has put this psalm here for you and for me. So please don't hide away those worries, those concerns, those fears. Take them to other Christians. Pray them through. Read your Bible. Go through this psalm again. The first step to dealing with doubts is not to bury it, but to bring it to Jesus. And maybe some of us need to do that afresh today. The truth of verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, has become a reality in Asaph's heart. Verse 28, this is how he concludes, as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, your word invites us to be honest before you, even with our fears and our struggles and our doubts. Thank you for giving us this psalm. Thank you for showing us how when we gather again around the gospel and see what we have in Jesus, it it gives us answers to chase away the, the fears and the struggles and the worries. And we remember you and we rejoice afresh, surely, It is good to be near God. Amen.